0: Good morning all. Welcome to Summerhill Church this Sunday morning. It really is great to have you with us. Uh, If you have shut your Bibles, can I encourage you to open them up again uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 2 or 1 Timothy chapter 1. It was page 1191, uh, because that'll be handy to have there uh, as we look through uh, the passage together. Um, I'm hearing a little bit of echoey with the um, volume maybe a little bit, I tend to have a loud voice, so I'll try and project so it's not too silent. Thank you. Uh, and it'd be very handy to have that passage there as we come to look uh, at our second week in Paul's letter to Timothy. Uh, now, in uh, Shakespeare's play Hamlet, uh, you might be familiar with it, uh, there's a, one particular character, a character called Ophelia, who recounts in that play to her father how Hamlet, the, the named character of the play, has declared his great love for her with all the holy vows of heaven. Earnest, very earnest declaration of his love for Ophelia. Ophelia's father, however, is a good deal more sceptical about the genuineness of Hamlet's love for his daughter. And Polonius warns his daughter Ophelia that perhaps Hamlet's love blazes with more light than heat. That is, it consists more in outward passionate appearance, perhaps, than in genuine substance. The Apostle Paul could probably have said exactly the same thing, using the very same phrase, in describing certain church leaders in the city of Ephesus where Timothy, the recipient of today's letter, was bishop. Their ardent devotion to, you might remember from last week, various myths and genealogies and mixed-up uses of the law, superficially seemed to blaze with spiritual zeal and intensity and seriousness. But it produced no genuine spiritual heat, that is, no love, Paul mentions last week. It all produces, really, their intensity of these leaders is just meaningless talk and pointless, controversial speculations. In today's passage, Paul confesses to Timothy that in these toxic Ephesian church leaders, he could even see a pretty unflattering reflection of who he himself once used to be. It's a sobering thing, isn't it, to confess uh, about yourself. Have a look with me uh, at verse 12 of chapter 1 in Timothy, as Paul begins today's section. Verse 12 uh, is where we'll kick off from chapter 1. There Paul says, "'I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, "'that He considered me trustworthy, "'appointing me to His service,' Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus.' Like those wanting to be self-styled teachers of myths and genealogies in the city, churches of Ephesus, Paul himself had once displayed complete ignorance and unbelief about how God was genuinely at work in the world around about him. Paul himself had been a blasphemer imagining that God's work in the world actually depended upon him zealously and even violently sometimes enforcing outward spiritual conformity to the things that he thought made up genuine spirituality. Paul's history, as some of you might be aware, was of going and persecuting the early Christian churches, for they weren't sold out enough for God's purposes in his own mind. He arrested and persecuted, and even brought in those who would be sentenced to death for their faith. And Paul's blazing spiritual passion and zeal, it turns out, was more light than heat. It had nothing of God in it, it was really just all his own self-styled fervor. It reminds me, perhaps, of that difference between Cain's offering to God and Abel's offering to God right back at the start of the Bible in the book of Genesis. You might recall that Cain offered his offerings to God, really all just motivated out of the recognition that it would win for him. There was nothing genuine in his love of God in it. Friends, often what we might imagine to be our greatest sacrifices made for God can end up turning out to be devoid of anything that truly honours Him. It's a sobering thing to bear in mind, isn't it? It was true of Paul, Paul himself confesses it, it was true of certain of these Ephesian church leaders. How sobering. And yet, even Paul's zealous opposition to God's work in Jesus could become the perfect opportunity for God to display exactly how He does work in this world. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 14, picking it up. Verse 14. We read there again, Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Notice how Paul's extraordinary blasphemy and violence, previously is met not with God's own retaliatory power and violence, but instead with a display of God's immense patience. The greatest offence that could be caused, Paul claims, was his against God, and it's met with immense patience from God's end back towards him. Paul's own self-destructive spiritual zeal and passion was so great that he could label himself the worst of sinners... Yet to him, and through him, God chooses to display his immense mercy as an example of the kind of salvation that is on offer to all other lesser sinners, at least in comparison to Paul. At the heart of God's acting towards this world of his is the saying that we read out there in that passage, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners... Exactly what shape does that salvation take? Salvation is a word that we're pretty common, we're pretty familiar with. It rolls off the tongue easily enough. We've probably all got a million different ideas that pop into our head when we try and imagine what that salvation consists in. It was hinted right at the very start of the letter, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, where it speaks about Jesus as the Saviour, the one through whom we have hope. Hope is always directed to what God is going to deliver in the future. What might that be? Well, we see it in verse 16 in today's passage, where Jesus is described as the giver of eternal life. That is resurrection, the resurrection from the dead, freedom from the bounds and the grip of the grave itself. If we want to see the clearest, most potent expression of God's acting in the world around about us, we'll see it not in His retaliatory power against those who oppose Him, but in His immense patience towards them, that they too might come to share in eternal life, resurrection even from the dead. We typically admire the activists amongst us, don't we? And for good reason, those who actually get off their backsides and do something, achieve something, We tend to be pretty impatient with patience, at least I know I am. Uh, It really bubbles to the surface for me in any occasion where I'm actually asked to wait at a bus stop. I would rather walk from one bus stop to the next bus stop, hoping I'm not going to miss the bus in the meantime, than just kind of stand there passively doing nothing. I'm sure that says a whole lot about me. We don't tend to have a whole lot of patience for patience. But here it's God's immense patience shown towards us in Jesus that is to be the picture of God's most potent acting in the world. So exactly what does God-shaped patience look like? What does God-like patience not look like? Isn't patience just another word for spiritual passivity? You know, propping up the status quo, comforting the complacent, pandering to the spiritually compromised, often when we talk about patience, that's the kind of frustrating objections that perhaps spring to mind for us. We're going to have a look, as we finish off the passage, the second half of the passage, at two concrete examples of how God's immense patience towards sinners and blasphemers might concretely shape the life of the church household. And they're important examples because they're going to actually be unpacked in all the directions and instructions that are unfolding in the rest of the letter that follows on in coming weeks. Uh, Let's have a look at the first example, uh, or reflection on patience in the household of God, or lack of it, where there might be, in verse 18 and follow, chapter 1, verse 18. Paul turns to to give directions to Timothy, the one who's acting as the overseer of all these church leaders in the city of Ephesus. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Just as Paul had once described himself as a former blasphemer, so he describes some of these self-appointed leaders in Ephesus, some of these spiritual influences in the Ephesian churches, as blasphemers also. They are like what he once was. That is, people who grievously misrepresented Jesus in such a manner that dishonoured him, that brought shame and disgrace upon his name. Hymenaeus is one of these figures uh, who Paul particularly mentions. Uh, I forgot to write it down on your service sheet, but if you'd like to look at it later, Paul's second letter to Timothy that is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, describes exactly some of what Hymenaeus' blasphemy consisted in, and it consisted in denying that the resurrection of the dead actually was yet to come, that Jesus' own physical resurrection from the dead would be shared in by His people. And Paul doesn't encourage Timothy, at this point, to initiate patient dialogue with these particular kinds of leaders... He doesn't encourage Timothy to engage with them in public discussion or disputation, or to come to some mediating, um, unifying position with them. He doesn't encourage Timothy to negotiate a place for them within the church. See, it's not the job of bishops like Timothy to hold together a fracturing church at all costs. Instead, Timothy's calling is to hold firmly to the truths of the faith. Did you notice that? Even if holding firmly to the truths of the faith means abandoning blasphemers like Hymenaeus and Alexander to their own devices. Uh, Every week, it seems, that you could open up a newspaper or just have a look online and see new divisions being reported that are threatening to break apart the global church. And it's not uncommon for bishops to be heard insisting that their role is to try and patiently hold the church together, to mediate between the various groups, fragmenting over endless, ceaseless controversies and disagreements. That's not so. That's not the role of a bishop, as far as Paul lays out for Timothy in passages such as this one. That's never been the role. Of bishops within the church. It is not feuding and disputing church factions that bishops are to hold on to, but the truths of the Christian faith. That's what bishops have been called to hold firmly and steadfastly to, even if that means letting go of false teachers like Hymenaeus and Alexander, handing them over to Satan. And leaving God Himself to deal with them. Bishops who prioritise holding on to various factions will almost always be in the end needing to let go of some truth. And Paul lays out for Timothy which choice they are clearly to make. Hold firmly to the truth with a good conscience. Praise God, that that is exactly the kind of character that our own bishops show. Yet even as Hymenaeus and Alexander, the blasphemers, are left to run aground their own faith, as their faith begins to break up around them like a sinking ship breaking apart in the surf, even then, at that pretty dire point, even then, God's patience may still actively be at work. Unlike that Leviticus passage that was read earlier, where the blasphemer was given no hope of receiving patience or mercy, Paul says that he has handed these two men, Alexander and Hymenaeus, over to Satan in their chosen blasphemy, so that God may sober them up, so that God himself might wake them up to just how far they have departed from Jesus. It's not Satan at this point who will do any teaching. Satan's not going to teach them uh, about what they've departed from. Paul's just saying he's handed them out of the, the sphere of the church into the sphere of the world that Satan oversees and rules. But he's done so that there might be an opportunity for them to learn, for God to wake them up to exactly what it is that they've abandoned and let go of. God may extend his immense patience to these blasphemers, even as he did to the Apostle Paul once upon a time. And yet, as a bishop, Timothy is not to display the least degree of patience towards their faith-wrecking teaching that they're troubling the church with. And we read more description of exactly what kind of trouble they were causing in Ephesus in Paul's second letter to Timothy, to Timothy, if you wanted to have a look at that on another occasion. But what about the rest of us? Those of us who aren't bishops? How should God's immense patience concretely shape the genuine, zealous, passionate faith of regular believers, believers who meet in gatherings like this each and every week? Have a look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where Paul begins to give us an idea of how God's patience should be reflected in our own expressions of faith. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour. The quiet life, the quiet life. Is that what comes to mind for you when you imagine someone of genuine, zealous, passionate faith? The quiet life, eh, It kind of has an unsettling vibe of sleepy conservatism about it, doesn't it? A passive acceptance, perhaps, maybe even a conformity to an accepted status quo. Complacency. Not at all. That's not at all what Paul has in mind when he speaks about praying that we might have a quiet life. By quiet, Paul has in mind a life that is so justly and rightly ordered by governments and authorities that we're spared social and political turmoil and uproar. Freedom from the kind of violent instability that makes anything beyond merely surviving virtually impossible. Uh, Think about what we've just witnessed on our TV screens over the last 12 months occurring in the Ukraine. How could any kind of stable life continue on when faced with that kind of turmoil and uproar and violence? Paul's not arguing for just a complacent acquiescence to the status quo, but a calmness, well ordered settledness to life that allows other kinds of flourishing to be pursued. But it's not just human, social and physical flourishing that's dependent upon having a quiet, quiet well-ordered life. Uh, have a look with me at verses 3 to 7 uh, as to why this quiet life is so precious for Paul, why he urges us to seek it in prayer. Verse 3 again. He says, "'This is good and pleases God, our Saviour, "'who wants all people to be saved "'and to come to a knowledge of the truth.' For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. As finite creatures, we can only give our undivided attention to a finite number of concerns at any one time. And Paul exhorts us to pray that our social and our political lives would be sufficiently well-ordered and at peace that people might have the required time and space to come to the knowledge of God's saving truth. A truth that, in giving himself over to death, Jesus paid a ransom for us that is, a ransom that purchased our release from both the bonds of the physical grave, death, as well as freedom from God's judgment upon our sin and disobedience. We're to pray for the quiet life, not just to get on with our own comfortable lives, but that so people might have the opportunity to come to a knowledge of God's saving truth displayed clearly in Jesus' giving of Himself. To free us from both the grave and God's judgment. How much does that feature in our asking, in our praying, in our intercessions? Perhaps we could even ask the question of how much does that priority feature in our voting? You know, what kind of economics, what kind of education policy, what kind of immigration policy, what kind of international diplomacy might enable our shared life as a society to be so well-ordered that people would be best placed to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus giving himself as a ransom, to free us from the grave and God's righteous judgment. I'm not going to tell you which policies or which governments are going to be best placed to deliver that, it's probably going to be changing on a never-ending kind of cycle, isn't it? But Paul here is not calling us to quietism, just a passive acceptance of how things are, but a passionate, eager desire, a pleading after God that our lives would be so well-ordered, that there would be nothing that would needlessly get in the way of people coming to a knowledge of God's immense patience displayed in and through the Lord Jesus. Whether it be a matter of protecting the church from those who would shipwreck faith with their fascinated devotion to myths and genealogies and various twisted teachings, or whether it be a matter of seeking social and political stability of society through humble petitions and prayer, the ultimate goal for Paul is exactly the same either way. Whether speaking about life either inside or outside the church community, Paul's plea is that people would be unmolested and untroubled in coming to know and trust God's immense patience towards those even who oppose Him. That people would enjoy sufficient peace and quiet, sufficient time and space, not only to come to know of, but also to receive grace, that undeserved kindness of God that's on offer in Jesus. Uh, At the start of this morning, I mentioned that little clip from Hamlet, from Shakespeare's play, of Hamlet's love for Ophelia that was perhaps more light than heat, more outward show and verve and drama than actually sustaining heat and substance. Friends, that's not to characterise the lives of God's people, the household of God. Our lives are to be less blazing outward passion, perhaps it grabs people's imaginations and attention, whether that be personally displayed or politically displayed, and more a strong, steady heat that radiates from the knowledge of God's immense patience towards sinners displayed in Jesus. And in the rest of his letter to Timothy, Paul is going to be speaking about how church life might be so ordered not simply in pursuit of the quiet life for its own sake, you know, so we don't have to deal with troublesome issues and troublesome people, but so that we might be at ease to live distinctly God-attentive lives and be able to show and display how others might come to do the same. That's really going to be the driving concern for everything that Paul goes on to list out in the remaining chapters of his letter to Timothy. Uh, Let's pray that it would be God's immense patience that would captivate us and enable us to see how to put into practice everything that is yet to follow uh, in the book of Timothy. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we thank you that you have not responded to those who oppose you with immense power or retaliation, but with immense patience. Father, we thank you that you have responded to each of us with immense patience. That you are yet committed to responding to those around about us with immense patience also. Father, we ask that you would help us guard in our own church life such a devotion to your patience to us in the Lord Jesus, in his giving himself as a ransom, that we might be bought free from the grip of the grave and your righteous judgment, that we will be so devoted to it that anyone who comes into contact with us might see clearly what your immense patience looks like also, that they might come to trust it and delight in it, even as we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, friends, just before we sing, I oh no, please, musos come on, do come on up, but as they are, uh, on your service sheets, there is a little red notice that's on the, on the front point here. It's not, not anything you need to register, but there are some pretty challenging pictures of what Timothy says it looks like to order God's church household in the coming weeks. Particularly next week's passage has often been used in all kinds of pretty disturbing and unsettling ways. We're going to grapple with that next week in the sermon and we will have a question time next week but such is the nature of it and it touches on so many other aspects of the scriptures as well that in two weeks time we're going to have a a time in the middle of the week where we can gather together on a Wednesday night to grapple with how that passage fits in with so many other passages from scripture that speak about how we order church life as well. And uh, so there'll be more details about that next week, but you might just want to point that date in your calendar or even speak with your home groups about whether you wanted to come along and join with us on that night as well. Thank you, Misos.